Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. I feel insufficient to the task that you have given me this morning. Lord, I ask that you would overcome my own ineptitude, my own sin, that you would overcome my inability, the coldness of my heart, Lord, that you would overcome all of these things so that your people would hear your word preached to them. God, I ask that you would overwhelm me with your spirit and that the words that I speak this morning would be your words. And Lord, I ask these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Preaching two sermons in a row is much harder than I thought. Um, I have friends who are pastors and they do it, and it seems like nothing to them. But I'll tell you, it's really awkward to try to tell the same stories and jokes twice. It's probably just as hard to hear them twice. For some of you out there who have been at both services, I'm sorry. Um... But it's what I got, so we're going to go ahead and get back into this. Um, it, it's interesting. We've, we've come to a strange place uh, in our culture. We just finished, at least in our family, the first full week of online schooling. And in our family, we are not a device family. We don't, like our kids have not spent large amounts of time on iPads or, or iPhones or anything like that. And so I looked at the screen time. Because being a good parent, I run my house uh, like, uh, like communist China with regard to technology, okay? Like, I do that on purpose. I've worked really hard to lock it all down. Uh, and so I can see everything that's going on there. And I, and I looked at screen time, and the screen time went from, like, nothing to, like, 12 hours a day, something crazy like that. And... I started like delving into, uh, you know, what the screen time looks like and, and what everybody's doing. Uh, and, and I was just struck by the amount of attention that is focused in this particular period of time. And it's something that, that many writers have been writing about. The fact that we live in what is becoming increasingly an attention economy, okay? That the single most... Um, the single most valuable commodity that we possess is our attention. So much so that the majority of the things that we see out there that are done for free are done to earn our attention. Multi-billion dollar industries exist with the sole purpose of gaining and holding our attention. 
It's incredibly important when we think about what it is like for God in the midst of a world that is built around gaining and holding our attention. How does God gain and hold our attention? Well, I'll tell you. It's called two hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico at the same time. As I'm getting ready to preach through Joel, I want you to know that I did not plan that. I, I, I know that I'm a capable person, but I do not have the power to make two hurricanes enter the Gulf of Mexico at the same time. We have COVID-19 that's raging through our country. We've got wildfires in California. We have two hurricanes in the Gulf. And this morning, and I'm not lying to you, I read an article that said that there is an asteroid that's approaching the Earth and could hit us on Election Day. True story, guys. Or as true as anything is in the news. How does God get our attention? Well... That's how he gets our attention. That's how he gets our attention. God wants the attention of his people. He wants to be first and foremost in our lives and in our hearts. And so we begin our passage this morning as we're going through the book of Joel, trying to understand what is happening here. We are seeing very much God trying to gain the attention of his people. Our passage this morning begins with a very simple statement. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Now what's being talked about here is Joel is telling the, the men of Israel to blow the shofar. The shofar, and I'm, I, I, Norma told me after the morning service, she said, why didn't you tell me I have one of those at home? Because of course... Of course, Norma has a shofar at home, right? A shofar is a large horn from a ram that you would hollow out and blow through as a horn, okay? And Israel would use this as a way to sound the alarm. They would stand on the ramparts of the city if the enemy approached they would blow the shofar, and it would make this resounding noise, and the people that were out in the fields would know that enemies were approaching, and they would run for the city gates so they could get into the town before they closed it down. There is something that is incredibly um, jarring and uh, resonant about the shofar. I was telling the morning group that I used to work in downtown Houston, and there was this guy, and I don't know what, he, what his, his deal was. I don't know what his... Um, what his theology was, but every morning he would go down there and he would go to the four corners of the hospital and blow his shofar. And it was very attention-grabbing. And so the imagery is Joel calling on Israel to sound the alarm. Why is they sounding the alarm? Well, because the, he's standing on the ramparts, and this is the image that he conveys. For the day of the Lord is coming near. 
A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them, though the years, through the years of all the generations. The imagery that he has as he's standing on the ramparts is of a cloud of locusts that are blocking out the very sun. Millions of locusts that are coming in across the sky and then like a wave are settling on the mountainside. Now, I don't know if anybody here has ever seen a cicada. Has anybody seen a cicada before? I, I haven't. I didn't until uh, just recently. I went down to Houston where all bugs live, okay? And um, I was walking out my parents' front door and I saw a cicada. Those things are huge, that's the biggest, ugliest, scariest looking bug. It looks like this big, it looks like somebody took a regular sized bug and like exposed it to radiation and it just like plumped up. It's like flying across the, the entryway to that. It scared me. Imagine millions of them covering everything. That's what he's demonstrating here. He is demonstrating something that is truly cataclysmic. Locusts so thick in the air that they blot out the sun that everywhere people see, they see them swarming and writhing. But these bugs are not simply flying around. They're not simply pests. They are pestilence. And so they are described like a fire consuming everything in its path. We read in Joel 3, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes. Imagine again, you see this black cloud, it comes in, it covers the sky, it covers the mountainside. And what was green and verdant and beautiful before, as the locusts move on, is stripped bare. It's desolate. It's broken. But that's not all. It was like Eden, this land that God had given them, this example of God's blessing to them. And now in a heartbeat, it is like his blessing has been removed from them. He moves from fire to an analogy of an army to show even more the, the horror that they felt as these things came upon them. See, Israel, their military tradition is mostly centered on infantrymen. It's one of the ways that you know that infantrymen are classy guys. I was an infantryman, okay? So I know that God is on my side. I know that cavalry is intrinsically evil, Okay, I have friends that were in the cavalry and they too know that they are evil people. Israel was used to fighting on foot and there is nothing more terrifying to an infantryman than the on, sudden onset of horsemen. And so he says, their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses as they run as with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame. They devour, they devour the stubble like a powerful army drawn for battle. There is these 
multiple overlapping images of sudden onsetting destruction and chaos. This is meant to convey the image of total dissolution as everything falls apart. But there is something else that's going on here too. See, locusts do not, as a rule, create fires. They're not equipped with flamethrowers, as scary as locusts are. The imagery of the fire going out from in front of the locusts is meant to point a picture to the images that Israel uses to describe their own God. I want you to listen to this. Psalm 97. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes out from before him and burns up his adversaries all around. They would point to Psalm 97 when they were in the midst of trouble, hoping for God to come and destroy their enemies. And now, that same fire is being poured out on them. God's judgment is being poured out on God's people. But it's not over yet. Next, Joel begins to talk about the anguish of the people as they confront an army like none they've ever seen. It says, Before them people are in anguish. All the faces grow pale like warriors. They charge like soldiers. They scale the wall. They march each on his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his own path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. At this point, our text becomes confusing. If you're confused right now, that's okay. We talked about this last week, how Joel is painting a picture of locusts but he's also beginning to talk about armies and he's talking about the day of the Lord. What's happening here is a concept called prophetic foreshortening. Okay, And I know that that's one of those seminary sounding words that sometimes makes us kind of, what is he talking about here? What we're saying is that Joel is talking about different things at the same time. Kind of like a telephoto lens takes things far in the background and things close at hand and brings them together so that they appear to be close together when they are not. Joel is describing something that has happened, something that will happen in the near future, and something that will happen in the distant future. And all of them are brought together. He's talking about the locusts that have descended on the land, but then he is beginning to tie that into ideas about a great and powerful northern army that would one day sweep into the land as part of God's judgment. Now, this would have been incredibly resonant with the people who are in the midst of an infestation of locusts. Because they would have seen very much like an invincible army. You can't stop locusts with weapons, with shields and swords. You can't build walls high enough for the locusts not to get in. I want you to imagine what it's like to live in a place infested with insects. I grew up in Houston. 
where we know what cockroaches look like. Here in San Antonio, you guys think you have cockroaches. You're like, oh, it's a little cute little cockroach. That's really nice. They're little cute cockroaches. They're so cute. I saw, I saw a San Antonio cockroach the other day. I was like, That's a, what a cute little cockroach that is. It's a baby cockroach. In Houston, our cockroaches are like six inches across and they fly. Okay? They can carry a small child away. That's a cockroach, in case you're wondering. And there's nothing more disconcerting to be in a house when one of these things crawls up the side of the wall and takes off. It's like, it just flies across the room. Like, you don't feel safe. You feel violated. I remember going, we had friends come down from, from Boston. They came to Houston. We were going to take them to Ninfas. It was going to be amazing. We're going to give them a good Mexican food meal in Houston, best way to like introduce them, like Houston's not that bad, it's really good, we're going to have some good Mexican food, and we're sitting down there, we're sharing, you know, fellowship together, and one of these things crawls up the wall of the restaurant and flies across, and this woman's face just turned ashen white, she was like, what was that? I was like, oh, it's a, it's a cockroach, it's, it's Houston. Now imagine those cover everything, every surface all over the ground, all over the walls. There's this feeling like you have lost control over everything. But it's not just a loss of control. It is you are living out the judgment that you have heard poured out on other people. Listen to how Moses describes the plague To Egypt, for if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your father nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day." They would have heard this passage read every year at Passover. And now it's happening to them. That's the point of this. They are God's own people who are suffering under God's hand. These are not Egyptians that are suffering a plague of locusts. God's army is attacking God's own people. And so Joel brings this section of his prophecy together by moving from the specific circumstances of the locust plague to the more detailed description of the coming day of the Lord. Again, he's talking about things that have happened and things that will happen. And so he begins to talk about how on the great and glorious day of the Lord, the sky will be darkened and the moon will be darkened how an actual army will come from the north commanded by God himself and that no one will be able to withstand it. See, his real concern is not with the locusts or with enemy soldiers or even with the last judgment. The real subject matter of the book of Joel is the day of the Lord. He's saying, do you think this is bad? Get ready. This is a pale echo of what is to come. Has he got your attention yet, Israel? 
blow the trumpet and get people's attention because the Lord is speaking to you. The army of God has come upon them in judgment and there is coming a day that is like none other that they have ever seen. They are facing something more dangerous than soldiers, more dangerous than locusts, more dangerous than disease, more dangerous than fire. They are facing the anger and avenging might of their own God. See, Joel is calling on the people of Israel to blow the trumpet and sound the alarm because the nation is in grave danger. But it's not the kind of danger that they are used to defending from. It is not the kind of danger that they can man the walls to repel. It is the kind of danger that can only be repelled through prayer. This is why the shofar is being sounded from Mount Zion and not from the walls. God is calling his people onto his holy mountain. He's calling his people to the temple to man the ramparts of prayer. God is trying to get his people's attention to tell them that things are not right. At this point in the prophecy, Joel changes his structure and his rhythms and the way that he writes because he's indicating to his people that there's a new point. There's something new that he's going to talk about. And so he begins to talk about what the people of God should do when they come together. The next two verses of Scripture are some of the most moving in the entire Old Testament. We read in verse 12, Yet now, even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Oh, brothers and sisters, how many times has God said this to his people? God's people who are prone to wander. God's people who are prone to forget him, who are prone to leave him. Return to me. With all your heart, return to me. All through the desert, time after time, God's refrain is the same. Return to me. Come back to me. As they entered the land and forgot about him and followed other gods, every generation he would come back to them and say, return to me, O my people. God wants their attention. He wants their focus. And God's people are so prone to focus on other things. As catastrophe stalks their streets and fields and they all lie in ruin, Joel is trying to get across to his people that it is not too late. That they serve a God who is compassionate and forgiving. A God who constantly calls his people back. But they, he doesn't want half-hearted, mechanistic obedience. He, he doesn't want sacrifice. Indeed, they have no sacrifices left. There's no grain for grain offerings. There's no animals for bulls or goats to be sacrificed. There's no more wine to pour out. In fact, that's okay because that's not what he wants 
He doesn't want those things. He wants their hearts and he wants their souls. He wants them to weep for their sins, to feel deeply and truly the wickedness of their rebellion against him and to feel deeply sorry for it. There was a Jewish tradition, and there still is, when you are really, you really want to convince somebody that you're upset, that you take what they're saying seriously. You rend your garments. You rip the front of your shirt open, not at the seams where it can be repaired, but right down the middle so that the garment is destroyed. It's a very dramatic thing. It's like, it's like falling on the ground and weeping. It's a way of saying, I really seriously mean this. But God doesn't want that. He doesn't want a superficial sign that you're sorry. What he wants is a broken heart. Now to us, that may seem overly harsh. After all, we're taught in our culture that there is nothing worse in the entire world than having a broken heart. But that's what God wants. He wants remorse so deep that it is physically painful as we turn away from the things that we have been following to follow him because it is only when we have that kind of remorse that our attention shifts from what we want to what God wants remorse is painful because of the depth of rebellion that we have been trapped in See, Israel has been confronted with the consequences of her sin and Joel is calling them to repent. And this is what the repentance looks like for Israel at this time. He says, return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. He's reminding them that their God is a forgiving God, but they must come together and they must pour out an offering of their own remorse to God. It's interesting that the imagery that he has here is the imagery of the festival of Pentecost. Pentecost is a, is a festival that would occur in Israel after Passover. It's their harvest festival. It's where they come together to thank God for bringing in the harvest. He's saying, I want you to do that. Not because there's a harvest for you to praise but because this is the venue for you to lament the lack of a harvest. All the people come together. All the children, all the women, men who are, who are on their honeymoon with their wives, they are supposed to come back to. Everyone comes together and they gather in the outer court of the temple and the priests gather together in the inner court of the temple between the altar and, the, and the, the vestibule. They're supposed to come together and get on their knees and they're supposed to intercede with God for the people. 
this ministry of intercession, something that we have seen over and over again in the Old Testament as Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah and as Moses intercedes for the people of God in the desert. And as later on, Jesus Christ himself will intercede for us. See, there's, there's no surprise here. There's no, it's not a coincidence that they are celebrating the festival of Pentecost and God will pour out his own spirit on the festival of Pentecost. As people celebrate a festival of repentance and God intercedes with them through the work of his own son. The call of the priests and the call of the people It's for the purpose of repentance. As Joel instructs them that the only legitimate response to God's judgment is true and heartfelt, turning back to God. See, God is trying to get Israel's attention and he is moving in a great and a terrible way in order to do that. He's trying to bring to them an attitude of humble, sincere remorse for their sins. Now, I've been asked a couple of times, well, what did Israel do? We don't know. Other places in Scripture were pretty clear. They, you know, had idols, or they were abusing the poor, or they were doing all kinds of different things. Joel doesn't tell us what the sin is, and that's okay. Israel knew what the sin is. Israel knew what they had done. The point is not to condemn a particular sin. The point is to show us what happens when God gets our attention. The locusts themselves are simply the outrider of God's army. They are a foretaste of what the day of the Lord will be like. And so it's important for Christians as we face a global pandemic to understand that when we face things like this, these are meant to get our attention. Listen to me. We have faced crises before in the past. And if the Lord doesn't come tomorrow, we will face crisis again in our lives. Those crises exist to focus our attention on God and not ourselves. The plague we face today should point us to the reality that God's judgment is coming against the nations and against his own people. For us, just as much as Israel, natural disasters exist to show us that we are not right with God. And like Israel, our pathway to restoration leads through repentance. The point is not to make the locusts go away. The point of our repentance is not to make COVID stop. These things exist to show us that we are not focusing on God. And so we turn to God in repentance. God wants our attentions, brothers and sisters. He wants us to rend our hearts and to turn to him. He's calling each of us to repentance this morning. I am not sure, guys, if COVID-19 is part of the end days. I've been asked that before. Is, is the apocalypse coming? I don't know. Nobody knows. And the reality is that it doesn't really matter 
the reoccurring message of God's final judgment goes something like this. Hey, the end is coming. It's getting closer. Repent. We don't repent to keep the end from happening. Sometimes I think that that's what's going on. People are like, well, is this the end times? Or do we, if we repent, will the end times not come? Like, no, they're going to come. We've read the book. We know how it ends. The point is not to stave off the end times. The point is for us to be right with God when they come. Now hear me. We all face judgment. And we all face an end. The end may be tomorrow morning when the trumpet blows and Christ returns and the dead rise and all things are made new. Or the end may come when you drive out of this parking lot and get hit by a truck. One way or the other, you will face God's judgment. And when we see natural disasters like this, they focus our attention on God and on the reality that we live in a world tainted by human sin and that we are not the exception. Brothers and sisters, we must come to a place of repentance. And that means shifting our attention from the distractions of this world, from the distractions of our phone, from the distractions of our jobs, from the distractions of our lives, from our families, our marriages, all of the good and amazing things that God has given us that we focus on instead of God, that we worship instead of God, that we idolize instead of God that we focus our attention on him instead. See, true Christian repentance involves a heartfelt conviction of our sin. It begins with the rending of our hearts, with the deep understanding that something is desperately wrong with us. Sometimes this is hard. Because we've been trained by our nature and our society to think of ourselves as basically good. Like, hey, you're basically good. Sometimes I mess up. No, man. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that we are sinful from our mother's womb, that we are broken. Sometimes it's hard to see it because we are masters at the art of self-deception. One guy that I read said it this way. He said he has spent most of his life decorating the inside of his heart with a flashlight. You should imagine that. Imagine painting your room with a flashlight. You have a flashlight and you're painting your room. You can only see little parts of it at a time. He said, but when Christ illuminated the inside of his heart, he saw the mess that he had made. Brothers and sisters, that's what God's judgment does. It shines the light on us so that we can repent, so that we can focus not on the things that we think make us good, but on the only one who is good, right? So that we can change our focus from the good things that we think that we do to the good things that Christ has done. That's what repentance does. It shifts our focus and it shifts our attention. Because when we come into contact with Almighty God, we understand that there is no good that we can do to ever earn our place with him. We know that everything that we have done, our 
filthy rags in the light of God's righteousness. And that's okay. It's supposed to be like that. We are supposed to be dependent on God. We are supposed to be focused on the only one true and beautiful thing that has ever existed. And when we find our identity in that, oh, brother, oh, sister, that's where sweetness lies. When we are lie in the sufficiency of God to cover our sins and give us identity, that's where true joy is. Joy that is eternal. And so, brothers and sisters, as we come into a time when God is shaking this world to get its attention, we must remember that often judgment seems like tragedy. So often when we see judgment, it feels like the world is coming apart. This is true in terms of natural disasters, but it's also true in terms of interpersonal disasters. As we see our families fall apart. The man who is caught in pornography or the woman who is caught in adultery. Children who go off on their own. The job that we thought that would be there forever disappears. The money that we've been saving up for our retirement evaporates. These things can seem like tragedies when our world crumbles under the weight of our sin. And yet we're going to see next week that repentance is the beginning of restoration. New things begin to grow out of the desolation of God's judgment. Green shoots begin to shoot up like those pine trees that can only grow after a forest fire. God must tear down our own sinful selves in order to hone us into something that he can use for his own glory, brothers and sisters. And so as we face judgment, as we face brokenness, we need to realize that often we are like overgrown fruit trees that must be pruned and come back so that we can bear good fruit. We're like a piece of metal that's heated up red hot so that it can be beaten and honed into a tool. This is painful. Oh, so painful. But if we let him, it brings us new and better life. It brings us life eternal. It brings us joy and peace. It brings us restoration. So the question I have for you this morning is does he have your attention yet? Has he shaken you hard enough? Has he moved you deeply enough to gain your attention this morning? Some of you, God has been crying out to for years. He's been shaking you for years to get your attention, to get you to focus on something other than yourself. Will you turn and focus on that? Some of you have never made a commitment to follow Christ and have never repented. He's been working on you for decades. I'll tell you, when you look at a natural disaster like this, you should know that the day of God's judgment is upon you. 
turn and be healed. I don't know where you are this morning. What I do know is that God desperately wants your attention. So does he have it? Please pray with me. Dear Lord, God, I thank you so much for bringing us together this morning. I thank you for loving us enough to get our attention. I thank you that you are the God who calls his people back to him time and time again. So Lord, I ask that you would work in our lives, that you would draw us away from those things that distract us from you, and that we would focus with all our might on you. Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.